Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess, and it is my pleasure to introduce all of you to the brilliant Dr. Travis Gibson. Travis received his master's and PhD from MIT and is now an assistant professor at Harvard. Medical school. And as if that wasn't enough, Travis is also a principal investigator for the Division of Computational Pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Travis is one of the leading researchers in machine learning for host microbiome interactions and a guru in time series omics from DNA to RNA to proteins. Travis, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So I noticed that you did your master's your and PhD at MIT, and now you are at, ha- at Harvard. Sorry, sometimes my Boston comes out a little bit. Uh, now you are at Harvard. Um, that's a lot of time in the Boston area. Why do, you, why do you stay in the city so long? Yeah, so it's one thing is I don't like moving. <laughs> Moving's a lot, yeah. And I guess we'll kind of get to it. But at one point, I was going to go to the West Coast, but sort of for what I wanted to do, and then after meeting my then-girlfriend and now-wife, it would be really easy for us to both solve the two-body problem by just saying we're going to be in Boston. So whether it's academia or industry, there's lots of opportunities in Boston for what we wanted to do. And so it's just a nice city to be in for working at sort of uh, medicine and biology. That's very true. It is a huge biotech. So is your wife also in microbiome spaces or in other science spaces? No. So she, uh, when we met, she was a nurse and then she went back and got her PhD in nursing and ethics and subsequently was the director of clinical ethics at the Brigham. Oh, wow. And then now uh, is a professor at BC. And so she stopped her clinical role once COVID kind of wound down. And so that way she'll have more flexibility with our son and any future kids we might have. Um, yeah, being a professor is a lot more relaxed <laughs> than being than being on a call and being the director of the ethics service. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. That's cool. So how long would you say you've been in microbiome space? What is your micro moment? How did you come to microbiology? Yeah, so this, I know exactly when it was. It was in January of 2014. That's a very specific moment, huh? <laughs> Yes. So, and it goes back to meeting my then girlfriend and now wife. So uh, I had lined up a postdoc at Caltech and was pretty excited to go join a lab there. And it was one of the biggest people in my field at the time. I was studying control theory for my PhD. My wife or my girlfriend at the time said, I'm not going to California. Mm -hmm. So then I scrambled to find a postdoc in Boston through uh, someone on my committee. They said, there's a new faculty member at the Brigham and Harvard who's hiring. So I just joined his lab through recommendations from someone on my committee and didn't know anything about the microbiome or microbiology, but he was sort of studying the microbiome at a high level from sort of a dynamical systems perspective. And the area that he had moved in during his postdoc was actually in control theory. So I knew there was some overlap there and I just kind of joined without thinking about it too much. And yeah, that's how it started. (laughs) So what is control theory? Well, one thing is it's kind of called a hidden technology because the fact that it does so well is you don't really hear about it. But traditionally, you think about it in terms of uh, controllers for airplanes. So as the airplane is flying, uh, whenever it has disturbances or wind gusts, the airplane sort of auto levels itself out. And that's from feedback in terms of the orientation of the aircraft to some of the control surfaces. So the, the feedback loop and how the sort of 
state of the aircraft is fed back into a an algorithm that then moves the flaps to stabilize the aircraft. That's a control system. Uh, and control theory is all about um, studying this from a really rigorous mathematical perspective to prove a priori when the controllers are going to be stable for certain types of dynamical systems. And then specifically what I studied for my PhD was adaptive control, which we can talk about how I was able to segue into what I'm doing now. But adaptive control then is where in classical control systems, these the gains and the certain components in the algorithm are fixed. Adaptive controllers, these sort of gains are changed on the fly from data in real time as you fly. So, you know, this would now be called machine learning or, you know, it's been a sort of integrated into other areas of machine learning, but it's it's real time online learning of control gains. Okay. Yeah, cool. So well, I think we'll get a little bit more into that later on when we talk about your research a little bit more too. So coming from not a micro background and kind of falling into it or location, do you have a favorite microbe or microbial function? Yes. So I guess it would be C. diff. That was part of what uh, an application I studied when I did my first postdoc. Um, and then for my second postdoc, that was something that that group was working on as well and what some of the subsequent papers are uh, that I've been on. Um, the recent one that just came out with a student that I co-advise, uh, Jen Dawkins is about C. diff and it's kind of a clean story. There are many parts of the microbiome that are complicated, but when there's single taxa infections, the, the story's kind of clean. And this one's really interesting because, you know, most of us have C. diff. I don't know what the percentages are, but you could maybe estimate that 50% of people have C. diff. Then you're otherwise healthy, you take antibiotics, and then all of a sudden you have a C. diff infection. And it was just because you had a depletion in some commensal bacteria. So it's it's just kind of interesting, an interesting mechanism of infection. And now I think we know a lot more about it. Lynn Bree is someone who, who knows a lot about it in terms of the mechanism. She thinks it has to do with stickland fermentation. Yeah. So that that was sort of the first thing I was introduced to when I started looking at the microbiome. Yeah, I think C. diff is one of the first microbes that I sort of learned about in depth too during my undergrad. And one of the things that I always liked about it was we watched this little video about Cliff, the C. diff sniffing dog. And it was like this dog that could sniff out... <laughs> patients that were going to or were about to have a C. diff infection in hospitals and so those oh my goodness yeah. that's crazy I I think now I remember hearing about something like that but I'd completely forgotten about that now yeah, it's kind of crazy that's wild yeah I want to do a podcast on it at some point and blog posts about dogs and their olfactory glands because they can sniff out certain pathogens that they're used in agriculture too now with HLB sniffing which is mm. Huanglong Bing, citrus greening disease, which basically wiped out the Florida citrus economy in the past couple of years. So it's it's interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Bacteria in general are just so complicated. Another application I study is UTIs. And so, you know, talking with people who've been in the field for a really long time, you know, what are the, the markers for uropathogenic E. coli? And they're like, well, we don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> we just call it, you know, a UPEC if it's found in the urinary tract and like oh okay <laughs> uh, all right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean naming of bacteria is so interesting when it clinically versus non-clinically and you go from the genome to what it looks like on a plate and there's many different names for one thing it's a mess and particularly where i look at it from and sort of the complex human flora and trying to look at it at scale Sometimes we think we found an interesting taxa in terms of 16S sequence, but it doesn't really have a name. And then we're, you know, 
we're stuck. And we love to label things. So it's like without a label, it's like, what is it? What do, what do we do with that? Yeah, it's a 250 character long string. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't talk about it. So I love this question. Um, we ask everyone on the podcast this question because I think it really shows who you are as a person a little bit more and your connection with microbes in sort of a day to day. But microbes are impacting our health, as we've already talked about, but they also give us some fantastic and delicious foods. Do you have a favorite microbe inspired drink or food? Yes. So I have to be sauerkraut and pickles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. I didn't have a lot of sauerkraut growing up, but then my advisor went on sabbatical in Munich, and yeah, that was that was a blast. <laughs> yeah, and I, I for some reason I really like sauerkraut. My wife hates it, but I really like it. Do you also like kimchi, or you don't like kimchi only? Sauerkraut? I I don't eat a lot of kimchi. I think I only eat a lot of sauerkraut now because of how I was introduced to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So can you still, after having sauerkraut in Munich, can you still have sauerkraut that's made in the stores in the U.S.? Or is it just like... Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I don't have that sophisticated of a palate. <laughs> so, sometimes uh, that happens. You have it in the place of origin, and then you're like, oh, I'll get it from the store. And you're like, this is terrible. I mean, it did ruin beer for me for a little bit. That's true. The German Helles is a really good, like, light beer. Sort of like a what a Budweiser should taste like if it was really good. <laughs> and, you know, there are there are connections to it. So, you know, the, the Czech Var beer and sort of the simplicity of the Hellas, there, there actually is, I think, like a deeper connection there. And then in the U.S., I think it's made with rice to streamline the process. But at the same time, you know, you it does significantly change the taste of the sort of Hellas and Pilsner-esque beers. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine it would. So we talked a little bit of your research, and I want to dive a little bit deeper in, but maybe you can give us just a broad understanding of what you and your lab does beyond just C. diff and control theory. I think to color this properly, we should probably just sort of step through the history of what I was doing when I started that postdoc. Sure. Because it does kind of inform uh, this type of stuff I do now, because what I try to do now really sort of pulls from all that experience. Mm -hmm. It's always a journey. Yeah, exactly. And my journey is very... I don't know, circuitous. <laughs> so yeah, so I was I was studying adaptive control for my PhD and working on applications with very flexible aircraft and things that changed in shape potentially or hypersonic vehicles, things that we had limited wind tunnel testing for. So that was kind of the motivation for having these algorithms that could adapt in real time, just because the platforms weren't as well characterized and or they could physically change shape significantly during flight. And then I was going to sort of kind of continue that track, but then met my girlfriend and now wife. And so I completely sort of changed directions and started working in biomedical applications. And in general, I'm really happy about that just because in, as far as an application, it's really exciting. You know, airplanes fly pretty well and just sort of the opportunities there are a lot less than they are now. So yeah, so then I, I start this first postdoc. I never thought I would do one. I ended up doing two, but here we are. <laughs> I feel like everyone has that moment and then you're in a postdoc. <laughs> Yeah, so there, the person I was working with didn't know anything about the microbiome either, which is a whole other subject we can talk about in terms of how the microbiome <laughs> field kind of started out as not from microbiology, but from computer science and sequencing. And so that there's a, for better or worse, that's kind of how the field started. But anyways, yeah, so there we were just looking at microbial dynamics. We didn't have our own data, so we were looking at some of the... Re publicly available data in terms of the human microbiome project. And there were some CDF studies that were done at MGH. 
and just trying to see, you know, can we look at these steady state abundances of these bugs and these different people and say anything about the dynamics? And so we were kind of able to do a little bit toward that direction. And we could say, it's interesting that the more similar we are in terms of the number, uh, like the taxa that we have. So if you and I overlap by like 80% in the taxa, that the relative proportions of the taxa were more similar than if we only overlapped by, let's say, 50% of our taxa, which is kind of interesting, right? It, it kind of, there was a news and views about the article that said the rules of the game stay the same or something like that, which which kind of makes sense because, you know, these taxa, barring someone who's sick, they're supposed to be the same, right? And so if you stick them in the same environment and we're not having drastically different diets, then that's kind of like what you would expect. So it, it seems sort of ridiculous on its face that you could just grab two random people and say, hey, do you have the same taxa? Oh, well, the fraction, your proportions of the bugs are going to be similar. But mechanistically and, you know, perfectly clean, you know, if the, if the hosts were identical and things like that, you would actually expect that. So we were kind of able to show that on the with publicly available data. And then the other interesting thing was that this signature disappears in people who have a C. diff infection. But post-FMT, mm -hmm. they, they started to look more like a normal human gut flora. And so even if you have a C. diff infection and let's say we overlap by a certain fraction of taxa, so the abundances of the taxa are not determinable, I guess you could say. But then post-FMT, you know, you looked like an otherwise healthy person and it's sort of the abundances were predictable is a bad word, but, you know, that that's kind of what it was. Um, so that was interesting, but it was, it, you know, it's from a really high level, you know, the other person I was working with didn't have a background in the microbiome. We couldn't generate our own data. Um, I had applied for faculty jobs and didn't get a, anything back at all and was distraught. And uh, around that same time, I saw a talk by Garrett Gerber. Uh, he's a physician scientist. Um, and I saw his talk. I was like, wow, you know, I really want to do what he's doing. So, you know, they do their own experiments in germ-free mice. He uh, has a background in machine learning. And this was kind of at the time when it was picking up as an, an area of interest, but I didn't know that it was going to blow up to be what it is. But long story short, he studied dynamics and statistical machine learning in his PhD and was an MD and was trained during his, his fellowship with Lynn Bree, who is an expert in notobiotics and sort of introduced uh, notobiotics to Jeff Gordon's lab, I think, or I, I don't know the exact order of introduction, but a big reason why Jeff Gordon's lab is working on notobiotics is because of Lynn Bree. Huh, I didn't realize of, of that connection. I yeah. I feel like every time you talk about the microbiome, it's it's a small family and everyone's sort of connected in some way. Right, right. Or another. Yeah. And I think that she brought it over from Europe. So she, I, I don't know the exact ordering or maybe he, he introduced it, but it, it was her, her postdoc worker where a lot of that stuff um, was introduced or PhD. I hope I'm not messing it up, but you know, there, that's where it happened. And then- <laughs> That's why we have at the Brigham a really great germ-free mouse facility. And then Georg trained with Lynn during his fellowship. And then I, you know, did my postdoc fellowship with Georg. And so uh, I was able to learn a lot from them. And then that was really awesome. So going into the second postdoc, you know, that was great. So still kind of studying things from the dynamical systems perspective, but now I have these germ-free mice. We can do our own experiments. And then I uh, was able to learn a lot about statistical machine learning, about how to deal with uncertainty, quantification, and, you know, how to how to co-design experiments when you know that you're going to be using these sort of data-driven approach, approaches, how you might design the experiment 
differently, how you might add perturbations or take different kinds of measurements or different measurement modalities and how you sort of calibrate and quantify that uncertainty. And so then now stepping into my own lab, I kind of pull these things together. So, you know, studying biological systems from a control and, and statistical machine learning perspective, and really with the idea that we want to learn about these complex systems, but we have to do it by sort of co-designing both the experiments and the machine learning models. So would you say your lab right now, is it mostly dry lab and you collaborate with people for the wet lab kind of experimental side of things? Or do you have people in your lab that are doing both the ex- the physical germ-free mice experiments and the computational aspects? Yeah, so the great thing about the setup at the Brigham is that the germ-free mouse facility is a core. And so while I could have students go in and be trained with to work with Lynn, the Massachusetts Host Microbiome Center operates both as sort of like a state lab, so other people can can do it, but also a core at the hospital. So I just pay for the services. And I I do go in when I was a postdoc, you know, I would go in and see how the experiments are actually done. And there's a microbiology lab there as well, where the gavages are made and things are plated. But for simple things, I don't actually need to hire anyone to do that. And so my first hires won't be in that area, because that would be a lot of work to have a wet lab too. So right now it's just dry lab with those services and then the ability to actually go in and literally stand next to the person and, you know, through the entire pipeline. Uh, so that's really nice. So it's a great resource. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really, yeah, that's nice. So the co-host for the show, John, who's my husband, he started the germ-free facility at UCR and his PI, Ansel Shao, came from the Gordon lab. Mm-hmm. So everyone is still connected <laughs> in 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 one way or another. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, he he did the germ free my stuff and he was like, yeah, this is it's it's tough. So it's nice to have someone else to kind of Right. I yeah, you have to it's I think it's really hard to keep it germ free. Um and that's what a lot of groups struggle with. Yeah, and every time you bring in someone else, it's like too many cooks or too too many different cooks. You're just increasing the chances of contamination and then you're everything's gone for months until you can figure out <laughs> <Yeah>. how. <laughs> so I think we have a, a couple words, some jargony words that maybe we can decipher a little bit here. So in what you were just saying, you were talking about FMT. So I was wondering if you could just describe for everyone what FMT is. Okay. Yeah, sure. So FMT stands for fecal microbiota transplantation. And it's where you basically take a fecal sample and you prepare it and you deliver it into someone's intestinal tract through various means ultimately would probably want to step away from just doing FMTs because it's such a hammer and so broad to define taxa. So, you know, learning, we do these experiments to potentially learn how you would take what we're doing with FMTs and design a community of taxa to alleviate things like C. diff or other related diseases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More targeted approach. I think uh, fecal transplants are more like a shotgun. Something in here works, we're going to be y'all and hopefully you're okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and also the the potential for adverse side effects. So we've been pretty lucky that things haven't we haven't had a lot of these, but there will be things like someone's weight will drastically change, metabolically less efficient taxa or, you know, it could be a disease like, you know, I don't know, I saw something about monkeypox being t- transferred from an FNT or something like that. And so, yeah, that's, that is the worry. And so hopefully we can have more defined taxa. Yeah. That's a great tool for us because we make, we don't really use it in the, the sense that we're trying to cure the mice with these FMTs. We 
we start with germ-free mice and we make what we call humanized mice. So we take human fecal samples and then put them into germ-free mice and make these mouse clones of from human stool. And then the other word that I was wondering if you could just briefly describe a little bit is machine learning. I think it's something that is becoming a buzzword and lots of people probably know about, but can you explain a little bit what machine learning is and how this technique is related to microbiome research? I'll try to do my best to say what one of a giant, there's a giant in the field of machine learning. His name is Michael Jordan. It's kind of ironic, but uh, yeah. And so I, I like his definition. So machine learning, I think in general, is just, it's a field that isn't yet an engineering field, but it's more of sort of a science of how to properly make inferences from data. And that, that's kind of what it is. And so now we have lots of data in certain domains and we have lots of compute and that's what's caused this field to sort of grow up but it kind of really is in a lot of ways still a science in some aspects i mean some parts of it are really sort of hammered down but maybe in the newfangled direction of these large differentiable models that that's kind of a it's definitely a science or an art in some ways even art making art but yeah so that's what it is learning from data and and there's and sort of systematizing that yeah and then maybe how it's different from statistics, because, you know, I do sort of statistical machine learning, but, you know, I think of statistics as you make certain assumptions about the data, maybe about its distributions or where it came from, and then you're able to do some more analysis. And, and that's how you get sort of power out of the data. And then in the other extreme, you can make no assumptions about the data, and then you get the information just because you've thrown so much data at it. So in a sense, making assumptions on distributions or priors and having data, these are like the two this is your currency, right? And so this is how you make inferences by making assumptions mm -hmm. or by introducing more data. Right. So do you think machine learning is still on its its way up in, in popularity right now? I have no idea. I, I it'll be it's it'll be hard to say because of the pandemic. I, I don't know, it still keeps on going up. Yeah. And especially in the you know the area of what people call deep learning, which are the large uh, networks with, that are differentiable that you train through gradient descent. Yeah, that, that continues to be really popular. I don't do anything in that area, really. I, I do some work. And how I describe it is we can take a lot of our Bayesian models and make them differentiable. And once they're differentiable, we can use a lot of the same tools that have been designed to train neural networks. And so they end up looking like a multi-layer neural network, but they're sort of designed in a totally different way. So we talked a little bit about control theory, about microbiome, about machine learning. Are there any myths or misconceptions about any of these fields or maybe all of these fields that you'd like to talk about and put an end to now? There's just a ton of opportunity in working biomedical applications with data, just because the data modalities are so different and the technologies are so different and the technologies are always changing. And so that part of, of it is really exciting. I think if there's any myth, it's that you can maybe take some off the shelf tools that were designed for a vision system or an, an NLP, like a natural language processing system and sort of apply it to biology. So luckily that doesn't work right away. <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't have a job. The applications are very, very different. So while deep learning has had a ton of success, one area it's had success in is recommendation systems. And so it's very, very different than talking about a biology or medical application because they're the stakes. Well, for one, the stakes aren't very high. So if you pull out your phone and it doesn't recognize your face, well, you just move it around a little bit and then it unlocks or, you know, you put in your password or on Facebook when it recommends your friends or recommends your own face, 
if it makes a mistake, it doesn't matter. And it can be 90% or 95% accurate and still be a really good tool and be useful. But when that translates to sort of medicine and biology, you don't want to have, you know, you don't want to recommend uh, a drug to someone with, where you're going to be 90% confident you picked the right one or something like that. So the stakes are just total, like fundamentally different. And and so because of that, there's just lots of opportunity to, to innovate. And, and that's why it's really hard. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. This episode is brought to you by Zymo Research. Another of Dr. Gibson's most recent publications titled Gut Metabolites Predict Clostridioides Difficile Recurrence used 16S sequencing to analyze the fecal microbial diversity of participants. To achieve the most accurate microbial profiles, the Zymobiomics 96 DNA kit, which features unbiased microbial lysis, was used to extract DNA from participants' stool samples. Learn more about Zymobiomics extraction kits at zymoresearch.com. So I want to dive deeper into one of your more recent papers. The paper that I pulled out that I thought was really interesting was the intrinsic instability of dysbiotic microbiome revealed through dynamical systems inference at scale. Can you talk a little bit about this paper for everyone? Yes. Yeah, so this was sort of bleed over work from my postdoc and to when I started my own lab, but and it encompasses kind of everything we've already talked about. So the the idea is that prior to me coming into Georg's lab, they were already doing studies with C. diff and they would have, they would still be using germ-free mice, but they kind of have an idea of already what types of taxa they would want to put into the mice. And then they would challenge with C. diff. And the idea was there is, you know, can we learn from let's say 10 or 20 taxa, which of these protects mice against C. diff infection. And then from these 10 or 20, whittle that down to maybe two or three, and then, you know, go figure out the mechanism for protection against C. diff. So that's great and it works, but what if we wanted to do this at a larger scale? So we wanted to study things like, you know, IBD, you know, ulcerative colitis that are don't have such a clean understanding, aren't a single taxa and are generally characterized by dysbiosis, could we still do the same types of experiments? And the short answer is you can't really use the tools that they had developed at the time, just because of the complexity. If you generated a time series and tried to learn what was going on, you know, hundreds and hundreds of taxa, and if you wanted to learn the ecological network, it would be you know, 100,000 interactions, it would look like a spaghetti web of interactions. And so the idea there is, if you wanted to do that same experiment, how would you do it? And so we designed this statistical machine learning uh, model and math and then turned it into software. And basically the idea there is that we're going to do these similar experiments where we're going to put taxa into germ-free mice and we're going to learn from the time series, but it needs to have a couple of features that weren't present in some of the other tools that had previously been made. One of them is that we wanted to automatically learn, mm -hmm. like group the taxa into modules. So, you know, we weren't looking at individual taxa, but maybe groups that were responding similarly. And we also wanted to be really careful about how we incorporated the measurement uncertainty. And so making it fully Bayesian so that when we had our different measurement modalities, amplicon sequencing and qPCR or spikins, that we could capture that uncertainty, have it into the model. And so that our predictions later on would explicitly depend on, on that measurement uncertainty. So 
you know, if at one time point you had a really low read depth sample and there was like a large variability compared to the other time points, well, the model would know it has a low read depth, therefore the noise is higher, and therefore you should discount this. Mm-hmm. And so it's a principled way of actually doing that instead of making arbitrary thresholds or cutoffs. And so that was it. So it's basically captures measurement uncertainty to the best that we can, and then tries to organize things into modules so that we're not looking at a spaghetti mess of a network, and then use that to then, you know, design experiments downstream. So we did a sort of a pilot with one human fecal sample from a healthy person, one human fecal sample from a person with UC, put them into cohorts of mice, and then use the model to kind of see what was going on. And, you know, at first pass, it it made sense. And it's kind of cool. Looks like the healthy person has a network that where it looks like there's crossfeeding going on from starch degrading bacteria. And in the the dysbiotic cohort, the sort of same structure isn't there. The starch degrading tax actually aren't present and they're not present in, in these large studies that have been done with like HMP2. So they're depleted in starch degraders and just sort of the, there's a lot more competition going on between the modules containing groups of taxa it's like Lacnospiraceae and Ruminococaceae. So we're starting now to try to validate some of that, but it was just a proof of principle that maybe we can do this at scale. Uh, you just have to be really careful with how you design the experiments and then, you know, have soft models and software that can try and tell you what's going on and have it still be interpretable and things like that. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about how you designed this experiment. It was a 65-day experiment with 77 sampling points. Right, right. But you didn't sample evenly across the 65 days. Why was this important? With every experiment, you'll obviously have a budget. And so there's only a finite number of samples we can take. And so for dynamical systems, you don't really learn during steady state. You only really can learn the dynamics when there's transients going on and so when things are changing. And so with that being said, we also did many, many rounds of perturbations too. So we don't, it's not 65 days where we just colonize the mice and then for 65 days, let them, you know, equilibrate because after like a week or so, they're basically at steady state. So we did multiple successive rounds of perturbations to both one better learn the dynamics, but also to use the mice more efficiently by doing these, you know, serially, uh, you know, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks off, instead of having, you know, many, many, many cohorts of mice and doing all types of different perturbations. But then to your question about how do you place the time points? Well, we want to have more measurements during these periods of transients. So just before and just after the perturbations, we would take twice a day sample collection. And, you know, in statistics, with even without knowing what this would be called, it's, you know, during during time points, when you expect higher variability, you want more measurements to capture that variation, right? You only learn the dynamics during the transients anyways. And so that's where you would probably want to take all of your measurements. And then once they've reached steady state or pseudo steady state, so after like during the second week, you know, then we take them every other day. And that way, given a budget, take as many measurements as you can during the transients. And that's that's kind of our approach. Right. Yeah. So I think that made a lot of sense when I first read that and when I heard you speak about it at a conference. But it's also something that never came up in any of my studies of microbiome. And in a lot of papers that you read, they just kind of take it evenly throughout the entire experimental design. So I thought that was um, almost like, oh, of course, that's what we should do. But it's not something that everyone does. Knowing that we're going to be using a more data-driven approach, we also design the experiments differently, which is good. And we should. A lot of it has to do with what we're trying to do. And, and knowing 
the limitations of our models and things like that. Yeah. So that paper deals a lot with the idea of dysbiosis. And in the abstract, you even say like dysbiosis remains poorly understood. And I was wondering if you could describe to us what dysbiosis is and how you understand it now. Right. It's poorly understood. So I don't know if I can say anything really profound about it. (laughs) The biggest thing that people recognize right away is just sort of the diversity of the taxa are really reduced in certain dysbiotic states. So for C. diff infections, people take antibiotics, so that reduces the diversity of the gut. But even for IBD and things like that, if you look at large cohorts, you do see that there's a reduced diversity. That's one of the hallmarks of a dysbiotic microbiome is just the lack of diversity. But aside from that, we don't know what's going on. So in a way, it's a perfect system for research because nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> I mean, there, I think there's a lot of stuff in microbiome and microbiology where we have terms that we use, like we know what they mean, but we don't really have an actual definition. And that's seen a lot in when we try to name a genus or name a species mm. from having a term like what is healthy versus not healthy. Mm. Yeah, I think you just needed labels so you can talk about it, but it's going to be so different depending on different environments and the different use cases that there is no clear definition. Yeah, I guess for us in the paper, we just meant that it came from a non-healthy, like we a priori knew the, the phenotype that the feces came from. It, I mean, it did, it did happen that that fecal sample was way lower in diversity than the other one, um, but that isn't, it was more of the phenotype. You know, we knew that it was coming from a, a UC patient. Yeah. So do you think we'll ever have like direct definition for dysbiosis or will always be this term that just kind of describes not healthy? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You know, even, you know, it's funny, we talk about things in papers. We actually, we we called it the ulcerative colitis cohort, but we didn't want to pretend like we had like said something profound about UC. So we just used the catch-all term dysbiotic. Uh So actually even using the word dysbiotic versus a patient who presented with ulcerative colitis <laughs> was a kind of a strategic thing to just not try to pretend like we were actually figuring out what's really going on with UC, for instance. Right. Yeah, because it can be so different even, even from one person to the next, what UC is and how it affects them. So let's talk a little bit about the bioinformatics package. Do you call it a bioinformatics package? I realize that's not a term you use very often. Yeah. So we actually, and what we do, we kind of, bioinformatics means something really specific to us. So we we kind of think of bioinformatics as, you know, you have your raw data and you need to process it to maybe do some downstream things with it. So, you know, taking amplicon sequences and kind of cleaning them up, we consider that to be more of bioinformatics. Whereas what we do on the back end, we think of as more like modeling and and more like machine learning in the sense that we are trying to make inferences from the data. It's not sort of a, not a part of the formal process of cleaning the data. And so that's Mm -hmm. kind of how we distinguish it. And I think that that is a useful way to do it. So, you know, if you're doing computational biology, yes, you have parts of the, the pipeline that are more bioinformatical. And then the things that we do where we're trying to directly make an inference on the data towards some biology, we, we consider that to be more more modeling. You know, you could have a pipeline where it goes straight from the raw reads to the prediction, and we actually do do that ourselves. So maybe I'll talk about that. And it has a very sophisticated model. But yeah, so that's that's kind of how we distinguish them. Yeah, yeah, I like that definition. I feel like oftentimes people throw around bioinformatics and computational biology and machine learning and data science as sort of all inclusive, like kind of the same thing, but they are very different in what they're trying to do. 
Yeah, and, and the programs that people go to will be very different if you go to a bioinformatics program versus, let's say, a, maybe a computational biology program, which of course encompasses that, but then might have like a machine learning component where you're like, like I said, I, th- I think that's more about making inferences from the data. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the software that came out of this paper that you had. It's written in Python. It's completely open access. It's online right now. The data sets we used are online, even though the paper hasn't been accepted anywhere yet. It's still a preprint and it's still going through the rounds. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing that we had to do com- compared to the previous one was the idea of integrating the like fully propagating the measurement uncertainty, you know, that was something that wasn't done in the, there's a previous, we called it M design two. There was an M design one. We also argued about what do we call it? Do we call it M design two? But it's quite different. Were there other names that got thrown out? Oh yeah. I mean, I think actually this is fun to talk about sort of the behind the scenes. So, you know, I was, I was finishing up my postdoc and starting my own lab. Georg, my postdoc advisor had named his M design one. Um, and I was like, well, Maybe we can call it MDesign2, but maybe we should call it something else since I'm starting my group. And it really is sort of different. And maybe the reviewers will think it's incremental, which one of the reviewers did. <laughs> <laughs> Other than the fact that it's modeling these ecological networks and it's based upon what's called Lodka Volterra dynamics. So maybe I should say what that is. So people sh- may or may not be familiar with these sort of the simplest population dynamic model, sort of like logistic growth. Right? So these curves, they go up, they're exponential and growth, and then they kind of flatten out, right? And, and so it's the sort of the simplest way to model a population. So you just take that model, and then you add in pairwise interactions, and then you have lotka Volterra dynamics. So it's the idea of just the simplest model from going from one taxa population, and you add this multiple species interactions, and that's lotka Volterra. And they have these specific interaction terms, which you can think of as the edges on a graph, if, if the graph represents who's interacting with you. And these are should be thought of strictly as these are sort of ecological interactions. They capture all types of things, maybe not even direct effects, right? If you're just competing for resources or there's probably an intermediate metabolite. So these are ecological interactions. Let's just be clear. Yeah. So in the previous version, it didn't propagate the uncertainty. It didn't put these bugs into modules. It wasn't written in open source software. And, you know, you can kind of go on and on, but it's sort of now it's, it's, the core sort of dynamics at the heart of it, yes, are Lodka Volterra, but absolutely everything else is is different. So it's, it should be more user friendly, and and now it's fully Bayesian. And but the biggest differences are the the modeling of the noise and the the modules. The fact that it auto groups taxa into modules to help you with the interpretation. So have you seen a lot of people start to use it? Are you getting a lot of people saying, "Oh, this is not working. I can't figure out how to install this." Yeah. So I I just got back from ISME in Switzerland. And the first comment I got was, I ran your code, but it was all one big module and no one's interacting. Yeah. So that's actually interesting. And that's what kind of will happen if you look at a time series that isn't very informative. So I think a lot of people who would want to use this think that you can take a maybe a longitudinal study from a human cohort, let's say. Uh, but there, you know, one, the density of the time series probably isn't sufficient to learn dynamics if you're just getting a fecal sample every week. Also, the person is kind of at sort of steady state if there aren't interventions and you don't know when the interventions were. And so in a way, that's kind of good. The model told him that, yeah, uh, we just, they're all in one big group and they're not interacting because it it can't learn anything if the dynamics aren't rich enough. So that's the, probably that that's the biggest thing that we'll probably have to communicate to the field is that, you know, if you want to learn dynamics, you have to have dynamics to learn from. (laughs) 
<laughs> Makes sense. But yeah, I can see that. So who should use this package? Is it specific to people studying human, mouse, bacterial microbiome research? Or can it be used in environmental settings as well, as long as you have the density sampling that you need? Yeah, so I think the way that we've written it, and I think the way we'll move forward is sort of anyone who wants to study ecology that has measurements, I think we're going to adapt it so that the measurement modalities can even be different. And so anyone who has sort of time series data that is sampled densely enough or has these sort of transients to learn from, you could do it. And it doesn't even need to be maybe even you know bacteria moving forwards. The idea that we can have this Bayesian model that sort of collapses things into modules should be really helpful for all types of ecological systems. Just assuming that you can, yeah, get the right kind of measurements. Yeah. So how can people gauge whether or not they have sampling that's dense enough to be used with MDSign2? Yeah, that's uh, that's like the hardest question. Everyone, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, even at the conference that you were at, Georg even brought up the fact that he gets asked that question. And I don't know what the right answer is. You you know that if if you go from, if you have a, an experiment where you have like an invasion of taxa and you you know what the initial concentration of the taxa are, and then you look later and you see it's changed, and then you look the next time and it's still the same to what it changed, then you knew that something happened in between. So obviously that's not enough. You can make it more precise. There's sort of like these ideas as mathematical identify, there's like identifiability stuff. The rule of thumb is, you know, you need to capture changes. And so you need to have a few time points in between when those changes occurred to even have a hope. Mm -hmm. And you need to know when those changes occur, which sometimes you don't know. Oh, yeah, that's super important. Yeah. Right. So in some of the longitudinal studies, for instance, people will take antibiotics, but they're, um, you know, patient reported. Or someone, you know, there's a, a couple of like famous air quote time series. So, you know, Eric Alms group has one and, and uh, Rob Knight's group had some of the first longitudinal microbiome studies and Eric got sick with an infection, but then even there, right. I think he got food poisoning, but if you, if you look in the time series and you don't actually know exactly when it was, I mean, he probably knows, but if you didn't know, and, but you saw these, like this large change in the community, knowing exactly when that change happened um, or when that that dinner occurred is really important because then the causality gets messed up if you don't actually know. So that's what's great about the mice is we know, okay, every morning, whenever we do the perturbations, you know, they go, they get the diet gets changed in the morning at, you know, 8 a.m. And Right. You know, you're able to know exactly when that is. Yeah, with human microbiome or with human studies, it's so hard to control because people are going to people and they're going to do what they want, eat what they want. And if they're part of a study. They're not necessarily going to tell you they did X, Y, and Z if it goes against what you're trying to figure out. Or they're not going to know that they did X, Y, Z, and that's going to affect the end results is the other thing. Right, right. They're like, yeah, I, I had a bunch of cigarettes. I had no idea that would impact my microbiome, <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> that's why our system is nice. So I guess that's the one thing I would say. If you want to study dynamics, th then having a system which you can control is makes your life a little bit easier. If someone listening to this is getting really excited about what you're talking about with machine learning and the microbiome. What kind of advice would you give them or, or where would you send them to sort of learn the next steps? Yeah, so I guess one thing I'll say is I am hiring. I have I've been fortunate. I have lots of money from grants and things. Yeah, advice. I don't know. I feel really lucky. Um, I almost left academia basically, like in between the postdocs. Not really sure what I wanted to do. I I think the only thing I can say is that you know I see some people in positions that I was hoping to have when I was younger, 
And there's always the people who are kind of eccentric and really creative. And, you know, maybe they do a startup or join a company and are really successful really early. But a lot of it is random. But I do think that for the other people who aren't just eccentric and smart, just being, I have found that being methodical and methodical is not the right word. This data is really messy and you have to be really careful. And so when you're like, you know, making these presentations, just being really deliberate, I think that's the best word. Sort of being really deliberate about what you're doing is the only advice I can give. Luck favors the prepared, right? Being deliberate lets you be in a position so that you're prepared once, you know, you have the windfall of luck or that opportunity opens up. And that's true for all fields, but especially in the microbiome, the way I can relate it to that is that the data is so noisy and messy. And so if you just spend the time to actually look at the raw data to understand how it was collected, you know, you can be heads above the rest because just doing that properly uh, will get you really far. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice, I think, for sure. So you've talked a little um, a little bit about kind of this moment in your life where you were in between postdocs and you weren't really sure where you were going to go. And I think that's something that a lot of us face when we're going through higher education is wh- where do we go? What do you think was the ultimately what helped you guide you into staying in academia? Part of it was Google didn't give me a job. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of funny. I went the other way, right? I couldn't get an industry job. That's, I'm kind of joking, but kind of being serious. That was the only job I applied for in between because I knew I had the postdoc. But yeah, so it was really seeing Georg's talk and seeing like, I, I I don't know, what what made me stay was seeing like, I consider him like a scientist, scientist. He's doesn't care about any of the sort of anything other than just doing science and being really careful about your research. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I didn't know this about him, but he is a really good mentor too. And so I, I just got really lucky with that, I think. And so the people you surround yourself with obviously have a huge impact on you. And so, you know, I stayed in academia because of him, basically. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I applied for some faculty jobs and didn't hear anything back. And then by the end of my second postdoc, they're like, well, we don't want you to leave now. So (laughs) (laughs) we're starting a new division of computational pathology. Um, Why don't you stick around? And then I'm like, this is not how this is supposed to work, guys. (laughs) (laughs) You just need to get lucky, but, you know, be prepared, prepare yourself so that when the luck happens, you can act on it. Yeah. So that's how I made that decision. Yeah. I I don't know. It's such a, it's such an interesting thing. Everyone's support in academia too is fundamentally different. And so I do think that that is why industry is so appealing now. And I think that the, it's, it's a lot different than it used to be because people can actually see what it's like to be in industry and there's a lot more mobility which is great because academia is interesting and and i wouldn't do it unless i was as supported as i am uh, in my department and the ability to do things and the fact that they let me do sort of fundamental work still in in, in inference and control i still i'm able to do that work while also doing my applications but that's all because of the support of of gare gerber the division chief and the department that i'm in yeah, yeah, 100%. I think support is one of the and I hear that from a lot of people because I'm always very interested up until six months ago, I was in the similar situation where I was like, do I go into industry or go into academia or try government and everyone I talked to was like, you just find a spot that you're supported and you'll be happy. And like, that's so much more important than is it industry or is it academia? It's, are you around people that support you? Couldn't say it better myself. That's exactly I think that's the right answer. Yeah. 
So I want to end the podcast. I know we've done this a little bit already, but I wondered if there's anybody else you wanted to throw a little gratitude towards to end the podcast. Mm, who should I think? Um, <laughs> so many, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've already thanked Georg. My advisor at MIT was Anu Anasami, so she kind of taught me to kind of just keep your head down and keep on going. That was what she really taught me. Uh, the, all the work I did when I was in Munich and she was on sabbatical ended up being for not, I don't know if it's because I wasn't working very hard because Munich was so much fun or- and There's so much sauerkraut. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically wasted a year. What I was trying to prove, I proved was impossible. <laughs> and she didn't seem to care. She's like, yeah, just keep on doing good work. And then she also told me at the time that also about, you know, sort of being deliberate and just doing good work is that you never know when these things are going to come back to be- a part of another project later and you don't know what the connections are going to be. So, you know, I, I stuck with adaptive control, even though I wasn't sure, like, you know, even towards the end of my PhD, I kind of knew that like control theory is maybe not, does not have as many opportunities as other areas. And now the central algorithm in adaptive control is a gradient optimization, which is what is the backbone of deep learning is, right? So I actually had expertise and even a harder problem, which is things that are learning in real time on the fly versus these static systems. And it turns out that gradient descent um, is the backbone of what we did in adaptive control. And so I was well positioned to actually be able to do that stuff and actually work on optimization algorithms uh, that could be used in deep learning that have sort of stability features. That's a part of my work that's kind of unrelated to any of this. And yeah, those two and my wife. My wife's really smart. Always marry someone smarter than you. Makes things easy. <laughs> The new form of marrying up, right? It's no longer about how much money they have. It's how intelligent they are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When she was a, she was a nurse when I was still in grad school before she went to grad school. So it was great. She made way more money than me. <laughs> it is also very important to go to, yeah, go to grad school with someone who makes more money than you. <laughs> I definitely married up. <laughs> so, Travis, I'd like to thank you again for coming on the show. It was a wonderful conversation and I enjoyed it so much. Yes, thank you for talking with me and inviting me to be on the show. All right, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. John here. We really enjoyed having Travis on the show, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter by searching at Microbigals, or you can check out our website, microbigals.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B. I-G-A-L-S dot com, where you can read blogs that we are updating regularly about the world of microbiology. Well, until next time, everyone. Bye.